Has anyone ever asked you for advice? Did you give it? Maybe that hasn't happened recently, but have you recently told somebody, you know, I think you should, or maybe thought it? That's counsel. By the way, for the purposes of the sermon today, I'm connecting three words, advice, counsel, and wisdom, all meaning the same basic idea. If you notice the title of the sermon, the church are counselors. By the way, I believe that this is the last uh, sermon title for a while that we'll have that has bad grammar. Um, but what I mean when I say the church are counselors, that is we are people who give counsel or advice to others. Turns out we all give counsel to others, sometimes when it wasn't even asked for. But not, it's not just personal either, one-on-one. Every culture, every religion, every philosophy offers its own wisdom, and I put that in quotes. They offer a way to make sense of the world. They give counsel to order your life and to pursue a good life. Every culture, religion does that. Have you thought of this? That being human means not just that all of us give counsel to others, but we also need it. We need counsel, we need wisdom, we need insight from others. I mean, think about, normally when we talk about advice and counsel, we don't think about how it is we grow up from babies to adults. That we have parents and family and other people that are teaching us and telling us, helping shape how we look at life and how we learn, not just at school, but life skills, how we look at life. This whole idea of giving counsel, giving advice, teaching, touches all of our life. So the question isn't if you and I give counsel to others. The question is, when you do give counsel, what is your counsel based on? If you look in your bulletin under the scripture printed, you'll see that, that note there is one of the notes that I've given you in the bulletin. So then when you and I give counsel to others, advice to others, when we accept counsel from others, is it based on God's word, the Bible, or is it based on something else? Now, counsel that is not based on the Bible might align with biblical truth and counsel occasionally. But when you dig deeper into it, what you're going to find is that the two are very different and basically they go in different directions. They're contrary to each other, even if, at some points, they seem to connect. And why is it important that you and I base our thinking and our actions, the counsel we give to others, on God's Word? Because God is the one who designed and created the universe. God is the one who made us, made the world and everything in it. As one person put it, the Bible is God's owner's manual. Now, I know some of us, some of you, well, yes, I do this too. We start, we take the owner's manual and we set it aside. I'm going to figure out how to make this thing work. I'm going to do this thing, put this thing together. And occasionally it works okay, but sometimes it sure don't. Another bad grammar there. Um, God, has, God is the one who made us, made the world, and he's given us directions and instruction on how to live. He's given us his wisdom in the Bible. That's why we need to look there. And today, as we look in the Bible at the letter of Ephesians, which is the letter that Paul wrote 
to the church at Ephesus. If you've ever read the whole book, you'll realize that in the first three chapters, Paul kind of stops and takes the time to explain all the good that God has done for Christians. He tells us how it is that Christians have been chosen and adopted and forgiven and given spiritual life. He says you were spiritually dead. God's given you spiritual life. And he goes on in, in what one author talked about, called it the indicatives. This, these are the statements of, of who God is and what God has done. And it's only after he laid that foundation that in the second half of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6, that he actually gives counsel. He actually gives direction and says, here is godly practical help for daily living. And it's all based on the first three chapters. So remain seated. Let's read together Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32. <clears throat> Let's read. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now these verses we just read are just a sample of the godly wisdom and counsel that we get from the Bible. And when you look at Ephesians 4, you see a pattern in there. In fact, it's in the verses just before the ones we read. And that pattern is put off and put on. That is, there are some things you need to stop doing. There are some things you need to start doing. And there's a good reason that you and I need this pattern, why we need the counsel that Paul is giving us. That's because we all, every one of us, start with a self-oriented way of seeing the world, a self-oriented way of thinking and choosing. If you put up the next slide, you see two hearts here. For some of you, you know I've used this picture for years and years. The one on the left, there's a heart, and I call that thing in it the green monster. Okay? It's the selfish nature that every one of us is born with. It's the, the nature that says life is all about me. I want what I want, and I want you to help me get what I want, and I don't want you to get in my way. The green monster. All of us are born this way. The other heart is the heart of a Christian. And notice, green monster is still there. Actually, Greg talked about that a little bit in his prayer, I think. Or Barry, one or the other. The cross represents the Holy Spirit that God puts in us. 
when we become a Christian. We become a Christian because God comes to us. He comes to us and puts his spirit on us and he gives us life. And so you notice that you still got the selfish nature in there. So a Christian has two sources of counsel. Now, you might think of the picture, I've seen it in cartoons and other things, the pe person is standing there and he's got the good angel on one corner on, on one shoulder and the bad angel on the other. And this is not the same thing because both of these are inside of us, closer than our very breath. There are these two sources of counsel if you're a Christian. But here's another thought. We all start here, selfish nature. If you're a Christian, you've now got the Spirit of God. So the Christian life is a life of putting off and putting on. The Christian life is a life of unlearning the wisdom, and I put that in quotes, that we're born with, that we learn, that's contrary to God, that results in us living and thinking in ways that are contrary to God's ways. Putting that off, and then putting on, learning God's wisdom, His ways for us to think and to live. And so we need God to speak to us. And he has through his word. In our verses today, you'll notice that Paul's counsel, either directly or indirectly, has to do with relationships, which is something all of us are involved in every day. Constantly. With other people and with God. And so we need what we see here, both for the put-offs and the put-ons. So look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Truth and lies are important to God because God is truth. You see a theme in the Bible and I'm, if you put up the next slide, I've got three verses just from the book of Proverbs, but they give you a sense of what God says in the Bible about truth and lies. Proverbs 12:19. Truth stands the test of time. Lies are soon exposed. If you start telling lies, you have to keep, tr you have to keep track of your lies, who you told them to. And at some point, you cannot help it, you're going to get... It's, it's going to all come out. We've seen that in the news plenty enough, haven't we? Things that, have, that people have tried to keep hidden, that they've denied, end up coming out. If you're speaking the truth, you don't have to worry about what you remember, what would happen. You can speak the truth. Proverbs 13.5, those who are godly hate lies. A lie is not just another alternative to the truth. It's totally opposite. And then Proverbs 25, 18, telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an axe, wounding them with a sword, or shooting them with an, a sharp arrow. We don't think of it that way. We say, oh, it was just a little white lie. It's not going to hurt anybody. But lies are like Lay's potato chips. You can't just have one. One leads to another. We're to put it off. And what do we do with lies? We selfishly use lies to protect ourselves. I didn't do that. The dog is the one who broke that thing. We protect ourselves. 
We lie to get what we want. We lie to manipulate others. We're trying to use people, and we don't just lie to others, we also can lie to ourselves. Why does Paul tell us to, t to speak the truth? Well, we know just from Scripture because God is true. He loves the truth. But he says here in this verse, we're to tell the truth because we are members of one another. We are part of God's family. We're part of the body of Christ. We're to speak the truth, to put off the lies and to speak the truth. And then verse 26, he talks about anger. This is, it's not a laundry list exactly, but he is hitting a bunch of different areas. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, Paul's going to talk about anger again in verse 31. And here we just get the put off. Why, how do some people use anger? Because we actually do sometimes use it. We can use anger as a tool to dominate. Have you ever had somebody explode in anger in front of you or at you? And what's your typical reaction? You're going to back up. All right, let's settle down here. What, you know, how do I get you to cool off and settle down? Some people have learned, have been taught. You get angry, show it, push with the anger so that you can get more of what you want. It's calculated anger. Paul, in his verse, he says, be angry and do not sin. That can actually sound a little confusing because he's, when he says that, he's not giving us a command to be angry. He's, not, he's saying, you need to be angry. No, it's better understood that Paul is saying, in your anger, when you get angry, don't sin. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, don't ever get angry. Why? Because we can't keep ourselves from being angry, getting angry. Because anger is often a signal to you and I that we don't like what somebody else is doing or saying. They're making trouble for us. They're saying something contrary, contradicting us. We don't like it. And so what happens? We, the heat begins to rise. We can't help ourselves from that initial feeling of anger, but we can choose what we do with that feeling. Do we say yes to it? and explode over somebody? Do we say it and try to dominate? Or do we say no? And when you look at the Bible, it actually talks about God being angry. We call that righteous anger. Because in that, he's not being selfish. He's not using and trying to coerce and to punish and other things out of that anger the way that we do. Most of the time when it talks about people and angry and being angry, that's selfish anger. That's 98% of the time when it talks about it. And so Paul is saying, I know you're, at times you're going to get angry. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to choose to say no to the selfish anger? He goes on to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That is, don't hold on to it. Don't allow it to turn into bitterness. Where every time you see the person or think of the person, it all comes up and you're just as angry again. Before. 
The other thing that happens when we get angry with people is we tend to think of them as the enemy. And who is it that we get angry with? We get angry with family, so husbands and wives, parents and children, both ways in both of those. Friends, co-workers. Now you're looking at the party, you're, you're my enemy. That makes, you know, working together kind of hard when it's that way. And then he says, Paul says, do not give opportunity to the devil. In John 10, Jesus says that Satan came to steal and to kill and to destroy, and he wants to destroy us. But one of his favorite ways to destroy us is to have us destroy each other. You ever seen in a movie, in a real situation, somebody knows that people in the group that have a difference of opinion, and they very carefully and bring it up, and all of a sudden, the two groups are at each other? Satan likes to do that with us, to get angry with each other, to think of each other as the enemy, and now I'm going to get you. Then verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. To steal is to take something that is not yours, to take something that belongs to another person. I don't know if you recognize it, but in the Ten Commandments, when, when God says, do not steal, he establishes a basis for private ownership of property. Because if there's no private ownership, there isn't any stealing. And he says, don't steal. Now, in the verse, the context, he's talking about stealing things. But we can steal other things like ideas, time. We can steal somebody's reputation, or at least try to. Steal somebody's peace. Just say just the right thing, because I know it'll tweak you. Oh, and all of a sudden now you're upset. And I get to walk away. <laughs> we can steal all kinds of things. But in this verse, Paul's talking about stealing things. And if you look at it, you'll notice that the opposite of stealing isn't not stealing. The opposite of stealing is giving. Stealing is taking what belongs to someone else and I take it for me. Giving is I take something of mine and I give it, I share it with somebody else. And so you look at the pattern in the verse, he says, let the thief, the one who's been stealing, stop that. Do honest work and save so that he can give to others. He can share with others. So if you think of the opposite of stealing as giving, now think about how much God gives us. He created us, gave us our very life. He's given us every good thing we have. So when you think of it that way, God is the biggest giver of all. No wonder he doesn't like stealing. Verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. He continues with this put off and the put on. Put off the corrupting talk, put on what is good. Corrupting talk covers a lot of ground. Those are words that are selfish, words that are hurtful, words that are demeaning, cutting you down, lies. Even sometimes we can actually corrupt the truth 
when we use it like a club to beat on somebody. It says, instead, use your words to build up. Use your words to encourage, to help someone, to comfort them, to correct them. And he says, make it fit the occasion. Make it appropriate. Not just your words, but also your manner and your attitude as you speak to them. And as you do that, what are you doing? He says you're giving grace. You're doing good to them. You're helping them and comforting them. And notice that the focus is on the other person. Just like in the one before this. The stealing, the focus is on me. But if I stop stealing and work and start giving, the focus is on the person I give to. Just like God focuses and cares for us. So, so far, these... This counsel has been related to us, our dealings with other people. Then verse 30, we're now dealing with our relationship with God. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That last part of it, the sealed for the day of redemption, is talking about a promise of heaven where all of the brokenness, all the mess that we are living with and in and under and around today and contribute to, it'll all be gone. You remember the, the picture of the two hearts and the cross that represents the Spirit of God that God puts in a person when he begins this relationship. The Holy Spirit is the great counselor for every Christian. He knows every one of our thoughts and dreams and fears. He knows God's heart. He knows God's word because he is God. And he speaks to us, and he encourages us, and he comforts us, and he also convicts us when we need it. We grieve the Holy Spirit by not believing God. We grieve the Holy Spirit by turning to some other wisdom or counsel that's going to take us in a different direction so that we're not delighting in God, we're not obeying God. And Paul says in the to, to kind of paraphrase him in the, the, the words of the famous counselor. Stop it. Stop it. Look at what you're doing. Don't do it. Be careful who you're listening to. What counsel you're receiving and acting on. And then verse 31, he comes back to anger. Let all bitterness and wrath, you can think of that as rage. Let all bitterness and rage and anger anger and clamor, which is harsh words, and slander be put away from you along with all, <coughs> excuse me, all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul piles on here five different words for anger related to anger. Bitterness, again, is where you're just kind of soaking in the offense. Every time you see the person, think of them, oh, the whole thing is there right fresh. Rage. It's been a little while, but road rage. People get angry, and they use their car as a weapon. Nothing good comes out of that. The anger, the harsh words, slander. Slander is when you talk bad about somebody. You're taking them down with your words. And he connects all the thread that runs through all of those. Malice, which means evil intent. 
whether it's the bitterness or the rage or the harsh words or slander, you want to hurt the other person. You want to see them hurt. Now, this isn't just about words, but it includes words. And words can and do hurt us. Many people are, grow up struggling to deal with harmful words, hurtful words they heard as a child. They're told you're a failure. You're ugly. You will never amount to anything. And they end up spending the rest of their life trying to say, no, I am something different. They struggle with that. That's the put off. Put off all of that anger and everything else. Instead, put on, be kind. What does that mean? Be useful. Be encouraging. Be helpful to the other person. And then he adds, right with it, Forgive others. Why? <laughs> because you and I are human. Because we fail other people, we offend others. Hopefully unintentionally, but sometimes we mean to. And whichever way it is, forgiveness frees us. I mean, what's the alternative if you don't have forgiveness? All you've got is the offense, the problem, the hurt, and, and the mess that's created. Forgiveness frees you from the anger and the bitterness to do good to the other person, to stop the pattern. There was a, oh, he was a university professor up in the Northeast. He was from uh, the Balkans. He had family that was involved in the genocide that was happening there. And he said, the only thing that can break the cycle of you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you worse, is forgiveness. And the only way that you can forgive, really, is to believe that justice will ultimately be served, but not by you. That God will serve justice. And so you and I are freed to forgive. And then he finishes the verse with the standard for forgiveness. You and I are to forgive others the way that God forgives us, which is completely. And what does it mean to forgive? That means we make a choice. It's not a feeling. Though feelings are involved, it's a choice that we choose to never hold that offense against the other person again. Greg read from Psalm 103 in his prayer. As far as the east is from the west, they never touch. So you're saying... Here's the person, here's what they did. They're never going to touch again. I'm not going to hold that offense, that thing they did against them anymore. And that's what he calls us to do. And if you look at this list, you'll notice Paul doesn't limit it or qualify it. For example, Paul never says there's a legitimate place for corrupt talk. He never says there's a legitimate place for stealing or for selfish anger. It's to be put away. But Paul isn't just the only one speaking. God is the one who worked through Paul to give us these words. And what is God's goal for this counsel? That we become more like Jesus, who perfectly demonstrated what it is to love God, to speak the truth, to care for others, to forgive all of these things. Jesus is the one who shows us that. So, I have two questions.
First, do you know these biblical truths? Do you know this biblical counsel for living? And then secondly, if you know it, do you know how to apply it? That's what the class that we're doing on Sunday evenings that I mentioned in the announcements, the biblical principles for Christian living. It's learning God's truth and then learning how to put it into practice. So far, we've already talked about anger and bitterness, how to deal with fear and worry. Tonight, we're talking about marriage. You don't have to have been in the class previous weeks. If you want to come tonight, just get a little refresher. Do you know those truths? Can, do you know how to apply them? Let me share brief with you, briefly with you how God showed me some years ago that I did not know these truths and I did not know how to apply them. Before I met my wife, I was dating a young lady, godly young lady, and I thought things were going wonderfully. I thought it was great. Well, one Sunday afternoon, she gave me a little test. I didn't realize it was a test. She told me about extended, her extended family and a situation and a problem they had. And she said, now, Mark, I want your advice, but not just your personal opinion. I want you to tell me from the Bible how I should be looking at this. What are some things I might do to try to help solve this situation? When she put that added from the Bible, I was blank. I was speechless. I'd gone to Sunday school all my life. I knew all the Sunday school answers. I'd learned all of the books, names of the books of the Bible. I, did, I, had, I had no answer. And that conversation ended our dating. It was a wake-up call to me. And then shortly after that, the church began the same Sunday night class that I'm now teaching. There's something, as I look back at that situation, there's something that I realized, if you put up the slide. I didn't realize that though I was a Christian, I was living my daily life based on a mix of ideas. Good people do, and I have a list in my head of the things that good people do. And good people don't do, and I had a list of those things. But I hadn't thought, what is, what is that list based on? What is good and not good based on? I had, without thinking about it, inherited some patterns and thinking from my parents, which, by the way, those were, for the most part, good things that I'd gotten from them. I look back now and I realize I had picked up ideas about good and not good from the culture. I did not realize it. I had my own thoughts and had a little bit from the Bible. <clears throat> but I was clueless about what God says about how we are to live. And the fact that, that our living should be based on God's owner's manual for life. So how close is this to you? How close is this to you? Is it a mix? Not only do we need godly counsel and wisdom for how to live, things like we saw in Ephesians, <clears throat> As we learn them and are putting them into practice, we can share them with others as well. And it, here I'm not talking about shooting on people. I think you've met people that they're very quick to say, oh yes, you should do this and you should do that. And I call that shooting on others. No, 
This is us sharing with others with humility, not lecturing. You put up the last slide. I don't know where I saw this, but it has just stuck with me. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. Are you sharing with somebody in relationship? Are you sharing with them with humility, with the idea that I'm aware, so very much aware of my own need for this in my life, and what I'm pointing you to is what I need myself? Or am I, do I have the attitude, I have arrived in this area of life, and I'll be glad to share with you the wisdom that I have gained. No, that's not humility at all. Yet we do that, and I'll point out two particular relationships because it involves authority. Parents and children, and at work, bosses and employees, if you're the boss, if you're the parent. It's so easy to tell our children, oh, you should. And yeah, we're telling the truth, hopefully, with what they should be doing. Do we do it with humility? What we see what you don't see with God is you don't see God's hand coming down from heaven, the big finger in the hand, pointing at you saying, you should, better get your act together. No. What we're celebrating today tells us, shows us what God did. He knew we needed his truth. And yes, he did speak to us, if you want to say from a distance. He gave us truth we need. But then he came himself, and he lived among us. And we see in his life what, what humanity truly is. We see in his life what a life of loving God looks like, delighting in God and God delighting in him. And then we see in his life God doing what he knew that we needed but could not do ourselves. And so we see Jesus' death and his resurrection, that he died in our place. And so we have sermons, we read the Bible, we talk about these things. We also have communion. I was talking with another pastor this week, and we were talking about a book that we had both read, and he reminded me of a part of it that talks about God amnesia. Not the idea that we've forgotten that God is here and who God is and everything, but that in the moment, when we're in the middle of a situation and we're stressed or we're tempted to be angry or we're tempted to be fearful, in that moment, for that situation, God is gone from our thoughts. He's just not in the picture. And His Word is not in the picture anywhere. And that happens to all of us. And one of the ways that God helps us is through this meal. As we look at what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, you're going to hear the word remember, remembrance. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. And it's the matzah, the unleavened bread. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. Remember what I'm doing, what I did. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant relationship between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing, you're remembering, you are celebrating the Lord's death till he comes. So you and I, every day, can remember that God loves us. We can remember how God loves us. That he sent Jesus to die. That he's, if you're a Christian, he's given you his spirit in you. That his providence, his care is over you. Which means that when the hard times come, it's not because God made a mistake and God forgot. It's not because God is mad at you. Because God is using that circumstance to grow you, to shape you. Maybe he's using you as an example for somebody else that's watching. You don't even know about them watching, yet they are. God's working good in all of these different ways, and he wants us to remember so that we can not be, so that we can see his wisdom as like the verses we look at today, that's part of God's love for us, his care. He says, here, you, you want to live a good life? Look at this. Look at these ways. You have choices here. Are you going to get angry? Or are you going to forgive? Are you going to use words to beat on people, to manipulate? Or are you going to use words to build up and encourage? And what you see in that is you see all of the put-ons. That's God's character. He is the truth. He loves and he cares and he gives. He's a giver, all of these things. So as we come to this table, Paul also gave a warning. He says, if anyone eats the bread and drinks the cup unworthily, and then he explains, he says, if you eat unworthily, not remembering, not really counting the sacrifice that Jesus made, not really caring how it is that God loves you, says, then you're sinning against what Jesus had done. You're sinning against his body and blood. And so examine yourself. Now, he, here he's talking to people who are Christians. He says, examine yourself and see. But as you and I examine ourselves, why does God call us to examine ourselves? Because he knows how easily we forget, how easily we turn away. And he's not the big Father in heaven with this angry, scowling face and his arms are crossed and he's tapping his foot. I am waiting for you to get your act together. I, you know, I'm going to make your life miserable. It's like being in the Marine Corps. You know, the punishment will continue until morale improves. And some people think that's God. Okay, misery will continue until your performance improves. And that's not God. God loves us and cares for us and he calls us back. Calls us to a life of faith, believing him, and repentance. Repentance, think of it not as feeling sorry for all that you've done, though that's part of it, as turning back to God. So that every time you and I start chasing a desire and we turn away from God, he calls us back, we turn back. And that's what he calls us to. And this is a meal of remembrance.
that God loves us this much, that God cares for us. And he wants us to delight in him because he delights in us. If the elders would come forward, please.